I have here in my sermon notes to start off with location, location, location. Has everybody gotten it by now? Not everybody has gotten it by now. The three most important things about studying Scripture. Location, location, location. Location in Scripture, what comes before and what comes after. Location in time, the historical context of the, of the passage that we're reading. And then location in place, geography and culture and economics and social life and that sort of thing. Now here, the location in Scripture is important. We'll get to that in a minute. The location in time, not so important, but the location in place is very important. In fact, our passage starts us off by giving us a short little introduction to the geography of what's going on here. In verse 11 of Luke chapter 17, we're told right on the bat that on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So we know where he's headed on his way. In fact, he's been on his way to Jerusalem ever since chapter 9. Chapter 9, chapter 10, actually leaves in chapter 10. Chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. It's been a long walk as we've been walking along these passages every Sunday morning. Jesus and his group of disciples, which is more than just the 12 disciples, it's a big crowd, are moving towards Jerusalem. And now we're told something very interesting, that he's only between Samaria and Galilee. That's interesting because Galilee is in the north of the country, Judea is in the south, and Samaria is in the middle. But when Jews from Galilee went down to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, they went just like my hand did, all the way around Samaria. They actually had to walk the border between Galilee and Samaria over to the Jordan River, cross the Jordan River, drop down to Jericho, and then make the passage up to Jerusalem. So that tells us two things. First of all, about this passage is that chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and now chapter 17, and Jesus still hasn't gotten past Samaria. All these stories have been coming one after another as he's making this way. But now... Why do the Jews avoid Samaria? Well, because they want to avoid Samaritans. And the Samaritans, by the way, are very happy to be avoided by the Jews. I only worked this out in my own mind a couple of months ago, so every time I get a chance to hit it, I try to hit it again. We only get one side of the story from the Gospels, right? In which the Samaritans are these lowly people nobody wants anything to do with. Well, if you talk to the Samaritans, the Samaritans would say the same thing about the Jews. We have our pictures of the Samaritans as these huddling, whimpering masses of people who are being oppressed, but the Samaritans gave just as good as they got, let me tell you. And these two groups of people don't get along, and the feeling is very mutual. The Samaritans are what's left over of the northern tribes, the northern kingdom after the Assyrians conquer. They've intermarried with the Assyrians. Some of them have been carried off. Some of them have come back. But the big deal is that they've lost their genealogies. They've lost their family tree. They've lost their tribal affiliations. In the process of the chaos of being captured and carried off and coming back and straggling back some of them and, um, and the intermarriage with the Assyrians, they've lost track of who is descended from whom which may not be all that big a deal, but it is for people who at least claim an ancestry to the Jewish people because that means they can't have any priests. Why don't they have priests? Because they don't have any Levites. Priests have to be Levites. That means you have to know who is descended from Levi, but the Samaritans have lost their genealogies. They've lost track of their family tree, and so they can't have any priests. They do accept Moses' law as Scripture, but only Moses' law. 
And they know that Moses' law involves priests, but they don't have any. They don't have a temple because Moses' law doesn't talk about a temple. It talks about a tabernacle. They have a reconstructed tabernacle at Shechem where people go to worship God, but no priests to minister at that shrine. Because they only accept Moses' laws, they reject the Psalms and the prophets, and that means they have no hope for a Messiah. And if you understand that, that they have no hope for a Messiah, that gives you a little insight into that other story that comes to us out of the Gospel of John. You remember it, where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well? Okay. And now, what the Samaritan woman says, why are you talking to me? We don't, Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And Jesus says, well, I am talking to you. And, uh, and the woman says, well, well, you say you worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And, and we say we worship up in Shechem at our shrine. But uh, when the Messiah shows up, I guess he's going to straighten everything out. And you get what she's getting at. She's c- coming back at Jesus. The Samaritans, like I say, gave it just as hard as they got it, okay? Um, and well, you know, when the Messiah shows up, he'll sort it all out. And what does Jesus say? He says, that's me. And the woman says, okay, well, that's new. What's going on here? Yeah, she's, she's, she's pushing back at Jesus. Well, you know, when the Messiah shows up, he'll, he's going to sort it all out. Jesus says, yeah, that's me. Well, anyway, uh, just so you know, the Samaritan leper has to hang out with these nine Jewish lepers. And the nine Jewish lepers say, oh, great, not only are we lepers, we have to hang out with the Samaritan guy. And the Samaritan says, oh, you think you got it hard? I got to hang out with nine Jews. So they give it, 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 it's a a mutual, mutual disfavor, let's just say. But the location in Scripture here is significant. Because starting with Luke chapter 13, the constant question being asked by the passages one after another is who is going to respond to the news that the kingdom of God is here? Who is going to respond? And over and over and over again, people respond to this news that Jesus is carrying, that the kingdom of God is here. And overwhelmingly, there are people we don't expect to respond to the news that the kingdom of God is here. People like sinners and tax collectors and now this leper Well, this leper and nine others, let's not forget those. They respond to Jesus positively, and I'm not quite sure exactly what it is that they've done wrong. But we'll get to those other nine. Well, Jesus is walking along the border of Galilee and Samaria, and in a lot of ways this story is a story about boundaries and borders. He's walking along the border of Galilee and Samaria, and ten lepers show up. And notice how Luke identifies them. They're lepers. They're not even identified by nationality yet. Luke keeps that fact under his hat for a while, because at this point in the story it isn't important. They're just lepers. Because if you're a leper, that's all that matters. We aren't told anything else about them. They aren't farmers or carpenters or fishermen or rabbis or bakers. They aren't husbands or wives or sons or daughters. They aren't even men or women. We aren't told. They're just ten lepers. That's how they're known. That's how they are identified. Because if you're a leper, that's all that matters. That's all that counts because all the characters in the leper story are interchangeable. The stories are all the same. You'll be an outcast until you die. 
And there are a great deal of laws, rabbinical laws and customary laws building on the simple law that Moses gives in Leviticus chapter 13 about what lepers are supposed to do. According to that rabbinical law, they have to keep their distance from people who aren't lepers. In fact, in our story, we're told they stood at a distance. That distance, according to the rabbis, is about 50 yards. That's half a football field. You have to stay far away from other people because leprosy is contagious. And they have to shout, unclean, unclean, when other people are around so that they're warned not to come near. How humiliating is that not only to have a disfiguring illness, an illness that leads to death, but also to have to stand half a football field away from everybody else and to shout about yourself that you're unclean. And that explains why the lepers have to lift up their voices to talk to Jesus. They don't just look up and see Jesus walking down the sidewalk towards them and say, hi, Jesus, could you heal us? They have to shout because about 50 yards is a long way away. And what do they shout? They shout, Master, have mercy on us. Master, have mercy on us. Does that sound familiar? I hope it sounds vaguely familiar. We said something similar, and in fact historically related at the start of the service this morning. I called out, Lord, have mercy, and you responded, Christ, have mercy, and I responded, Lord, have mercy. The fancy word, it may even show up on the screen. I didn't check to see. It's called the Kyrie in our service. It's more than just a three-line poem that we say back and forth to each other. Okay. It has an origin. All right. It's the oldest part of the traditional Christian liturgy in the West. The first Christian liturgy in, in the West was a, a Greek liturgy. Over time, that liturgy, the order of worship, the things we do in a service, was translated into Latin, but they kept that Greek part because that Greek is significant. Because, here's the origin of the Kyrie, in the eastern part of the Mediterranean world, where Greek is the common spoken language, when the emperor shows up in town and and walks through town at the front of the parade, all the people line up on the streets and shout, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. When the representative of the emperor shows up, they cry out, would you believe it? Master, have mercy. That's actually the word that, that Luke uses here, epistostes. Master, have mercy. That's the, the, the call out to the representative of the emperor. You see, in the, our liturgy, when I, when I say, Lord, have mercy, and you respond, Christ, have mercy, that's a major political statement about who is the emperor. And in the early church, that was a finger in the eye to the emperor. For someone to call out, Lord, have mercy, and the congregation say, you mean Christ, have mercy? That's what I said, Lord have mercy. That the Lord is our ruler, that God is our ruler, that Jesus is Lord. There's a deep political statement being made in that simple, that simple cry out. Well, Luke's first hearer, readers would have heard an echo of their own experiences, that same experience which is echoed in our liturgy every Sunday. Well, they shout out at Jesus, Master, Epistostes, have mercy. And what does Jesus tell them to do? Now here it gets kind of interesting. He tells them to obey the law. Obey the law of Moses. That's what it says. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. 
Jesus tells the lepers to follow the law. This is exactly what's told in Leviticus chapter 13. There's this layout of what to do if leprosy shows, out, shows up. Now, I know there's a great controversy about what, whether what, what the Old Testament refers to as leprosy is what medical doctors today refer to as Hansen's disease or what they call leprosy. It doesn't matter. What the Old Testament is talking about is about a disfiguring, a condition which leads to death. Okay, so whether it's precisely this bacterial disease or what have you is really irrelevant to the law. It's interesting, but it's irrelevant to the larger story. The story in Leviticus 13 lays out what to do when such a thing happens. And if you have leprosy and and you think that you're healed, then you go to the priest. And if the priest says, okay, well, maybe, then you're set aside for seven days and you come back. and, And you follow this process where the priest certifies whether something is clean or not. Now, in first century Judaism, there are priests all over the place, all right? Maybe we picture them around the temple. Well, once a year on schedule, the priests come from wherever they live and serve in the temple. But uh, ordinary, ordinary, they're back out in little villages. Maybe they have a job as a carpenter or a baker or what have you. But they serve several important roles in the village. And one of them is keeping track of leprosy. And so then so you find your priest in town and you go to them, maybe down at the bakery shop, and you say, well, you're a priest. Yes, I'm a priest. And well, what about this here? And, and, and to, 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 anyway, to fulfill the law. So to recap, anyway, ten lepers call out to Jesus. He tells them to follow the law, to go and show themselves to the priest. And on the way to find a priest, they're healed. And one returns to thank Jesus. Ah, Luke's readers start to say, that's a good Jewish boy. His parents raised him right. But then Luke delivers the punchline. Now he was a Samaritan. Now he was a Samaritan. And if you're here this morning thinking that you are so far gone that God cannot reach you, that line alone should wake you up to an astonishing fact. And that fact is this, that no one in the crowd except Jesus would have ever thought that a Samaritan would be touched by a Hebrew rabbi, let alone the Son of God. No one in the crowd except Jesus would have ever expected a leper to be touched by a Hebrew rabbi, especially not the Son of God. Yet Jesus touches the life of a Samaritan leper. Everyone else except for Jesus would have said he was unsalvageable, unsavable, unreachable, and literally untouchable, except for Jesus. And if the Samaritan is touchable, if the Samaritan leper is touchable, then you're touchable and I'm touchable. And if the Samaritan leper is salvageable, then you're salvageable and I'm salvageable. And you know, it was a great story already without Luke telling us that this guy was a Samaritan. So why does he bother? Well, there are several reasons to bother. The first is to point out what I just said, that the Samaritan is reachable. Not only is that true, but it also fits into Luke's design of his gospel here. He's planting the seeds of what he's going to go on and talk about in the book of Acts, about the gospel going out to the Samaritans and out to the uttermost parts of the earth, for that matter. But there's more here, I think. Remember that Jesus tells the ten lepers to obey the law, to do what the law says. Well, this Samaritan guy can't obey the law. He can't do what the law says. He knows what the law says. Remember, the Samaritans honor Moses' law, 
but he can't do what the law says to do because he has no priests to go to. Remember, there aren't any Samaritan priests. He can't borrow a Jewish priest for a day. He comes back to Jesus because he has nowhere else to go. What do the nine do? Well, they do what Jesus tells them to do. The nine lepers go to the priest. On the way to the priests, they notice that they are healed. They conclude by following the law. The priests declare their leprosy is gone, and they go home rejoicing. Jesus asks, where are the nine? Well, it's not hard to figure out where they are. They're back home. That's where they are. Back home with the people they haven't seen, certainly have not touched or hugged, maybe in years. I'm I'm not at all convinced that none of those nine at some point didn't say, thank God, and praise God for being healed. I, I, I don't think at all that none of them did. But this Samaritan has nowhere to go. He has no priest to go to. I picture it like this. Jesus says, go off and follow the law. Go find a priest. And he wanders off with the rest. And they notice that they're healed. They have to go to the priest to conclude the process. But he realizes he's got nowhere to go but Jesus. And so he returns, praising God. And he's praising God, I think, more than just because he's healed, but because he has learned something new about who he is. He knew who he was and what he was at the start of the story. He was a leper. And when you're a leper, you're in a story about yourself, a story about yourself that ends in death. That's his story as a leper. That's the story of every leper. If you're a leper, you only have one story, and you already know the end of it. You'll be an outcast, that's the story part, until you die, that's the end part. But now this man knows who he is and what story he's in now. In this story, he's a cleansed leper, made whole, made well, and worshiping the Lord. He's no longer the lead player in a tragic story that ends in his death. He's a side character in a dramatic story about a king who's bringing in a new kingdom. And this is good news because it's about a leper being healed. But it's a good news not just because it's a story about a leper being healed, but it's a great story because it's a story about what Jesus does in the life of this leper. Because it's an example of who Jesus is and what life in his kingdom is like. It reminds us of two things. First, that actually all of us are the lead player in our own story that ends in death. And second, the story reminds us that nobody is too far from the kingdom of Jesus, too far from being touched and salvaged. Nobody has an identity that can't be transformed. Nobody's story is so dismal that their story can't be grafted onto God's story, God's great story of a new kingdom breaking into the world. And notice Jesus' response to this. He says, your faith has made you whole. And this leads us to think about what faith Jesus is talking about. Not faith in the sense that I hope things get better. Not faith in the sense of being vaguely spiritual. But not even, I dare say, faith in the sense that the leper believed that Jesus could heal him. 
I don't think that is why Jesus is pointing out this leper's faith, and I say that because the others had exactly that same kind of faith and were, in fact, healed. But Jesus seems a bit disappointed in them. And it seems odd here that Jesus would dismiss the leper by saying, you had the same kind of faith as the other nine. It doesn't feel right. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Rise and go your way. You're just like the other nine guys. It doesn't sound right. And I'm, I'm toying with this as a way to try to understand the word faith that Jesus is using here. All ten of the men had faith that Jesus would have mercy on them. All of them obeyed Jesus. All ten of them were healed. But Jesus tells this man that his faith has made him whole. And it's certainly not his gratitude that has healed him, but his faith. And so what is different about this man? Well, the other men believe that Jesus can heal. They do what Jesus says. They, in fact, are healed. They follow the law. But they don't understand that meeting Jesus has put them into a different story, a bigger story. They go back to their families and so on, back home, But even back home, they're still the lead player in their own story. And it's a story with the same ending. That story ends in death, too. But it is this one man who knows that he cannot obey the law, who understands that he's now the part of another story. And if at this point he has only the slightest, faintest hint of his entry into another story, he knows that if he wants to be a part of this new story, He has to be with Jesus. That word faith can mean all kinds of things, I guess. But it seems like in this passage, what Jesus means is that the man's faith has made him whole because that faith is something like this. The man is trusting Jesus that what's been happening in his life, the good and the bad, is being used to bring him into a different story, one that doesn't end with death but ends with being made whole. He looks at his story. Leprosy is pretty bad. Being healed is pretty good. And both of those have brought the man to a place where he can be with Jesus at the start of a new story. And our passage this morning tells us something. First of all, it tells us that all of us have an opportunity to have a part in a new story, that all of us are touchable and salvageable. And it also tells us that if all we have right now is only the faintest hint that a new story is starting, well then, we better be with Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.